0: Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Give us a king. Those were the words of Israel to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Give us a king we want a king. Now, it's important to know at this point in time, Samuel had grown old. Samuel had appointed two of his sons to rule over Israel, and they were taking bribes and leading in a faithless way. And as Samuel was getting older, the people of Israel said, we want a king. We want a king. And he said, no, you don't want a king. And he gave them all of the reasons they did not want a king. If you have a king, he's going to require tribute. If you have a king, he's going to take your sons, and he'll make your sons fight for him. He'll take your daughters, and they will have to be in the palace and serve him. You don't want a king. And they said, no, we, we do. We want a king. Listen to their words in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, according to God, he had the standards of what a king was supposed to be. He knew this would happen and he had already laid out back in Deuteronomy the standards that a king was to follow. God specified if you have a king, that king is going to follow the covenant. That king is going to follow that solemn agreement that I have with the nation and he will be my representative to extend and to uphold that agreement. But that's not what they wanted. No, they didn't want a covenant king. They wanted a competitive king. They wanted a king that would make them like all the other nations. God had set them apart as unique, specific, special people, his own people. And they said, we don't like that. We want to be like everybody else. Whatever that type of national peer pressure was, they were experiencing that. Give us a king, they said. And so God said, okay, we'll give you a king. Saul was the first king of Israel. Now, Saul had some good moments, but at the very beginning, even at his choosing, Saul was showing his insecurity. And as time went on, the rashness of Saul, the insecurity of Saul, the paranoia of Saul dealt a blow to his leadership. In fact, he presumed to act as priest And God said, I'm taking the kingdom from you. So after Saul, we have King David. King David was taken from the pastures and brought into the throne room. King David was the shepherd king of Israel, and he was brought in. And the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. Even despite all of his personal failures, even despite his personal sin, God said, he's a man after my own heart. He was repentant. He loved God. He sought God. And you find that as David, like Samuel, the prophet before, as David starts to grow old, he starts to grow weak. He grows weak physically. He grows weak mentally. And as David is growing old, this this king who would find himself so many times before in the heat of battle now feels this growing chill, growing every day in his life. He can't even stay warm by himself. And we find at that point in time, one of, one of David's sons, Adonijah, decides, I'm going to take advantage of dad's weakened state, and I'm going to lead a coup, and I'm going to be king instead of David, my father. Now, this wasn't the first time this happened. Many years earlier, David's son, Absalom, had done much the same thing. Absalom had gathered up a group of people, a group of people around him to support him, to put him and install him as king. And David was torn between the love for his nation and the love for his son. And David and his supporters fled the city. They left the city of David. They left ancient Jerusalem and they went down that hill and they crossed, the Bible tells us, the Kidron Valley and they went up the Mount of Olives to the east. And then they went over into the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan, and that's where they camped out and they stayed there for a time until things got to a place there in the kingdom that it was safe for them to return. And then David would return and he would recross that valley and he would re-enter the city. The shepherd king had returned. But now this whole scenario is playing out a second time with his son Adonijah. Absalom is long past from the scene and now in David's final days Adonijah says I will be king it will be me and so Adonijah gets a group of his guys and they go down that same hill and they go down farther into the valley and he is anointed as king and they go and they tell David David, Adonijah, your son, has presumed upon himself to take the throne. He is now crowning himself to be king. He's got a group of supporters. And David said, that's not the way that it's going to play out because God had already indicated. And David had said, absolutely, this is the way it's going to be. My son Solomon will be king after me. Not Adonijah. Solomon will be king. So what does David do? David tells his most loyal, closest supporters saddle my mule, my royal mule, and put Solomon on it and take him down into that Kidron Valley. Take him down to this this spring called Gihon. The spring is where the priests would prepare and get ready for their priestly duties, their purification rites. Take him down there, make it official, and anoint him as king. It's interesting because David says to Nathan, the prophet, go anoint him. He says to Zadok, the priest, go anoint him. David himself can't go in his feebled state, but here it is. The prophet, the priest, and the king confirming it saying, go anoint him, my son, the son of David as the new king, the prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three offices in ancient Israel that one was anointed for they were anointed with oil not that there was anything magical in the oil but it was symbolic that God has set this person apart for this office for this purpose and God's spirit we're praying would be upon them so he says go go anoint Solomon my son and so that's what they do they take Solomon down that hill into that valley and they anoint him as king and then Solomon returns on that mule up that hill into the city of David, into ancient Jerusalem. And we find that the Bible tells us, this is over in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 40, and all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. They are making so much noise. The Bible just says the earth split. Why? Because there was this return of this king. Solomon left that city wall Not a king, but he returns into that city triumphantly as a king. Now let's flash forward a thousand years from Solomon entering into that city. If you flash forward a thousand years and you get around to the time of Passover, you find that pilgrims from all over Israel have come to Passover to celebrate. It's one of the three pilgrim feasts as they were called in the Old Testament, one of the three feasts that required that all males of a certain age come to Jerusalem to worship. Passover was one of them. And so people from all over the world, all over the the ancient world, Jews were, were pouring into Jerusalem to worship at the Passover. And Jesus, too, was on his way to Jerusalem. So what did Jesus do? He left He left the northern area of Galilee, where he kind of made his home base of operations. And he traveled down through the wilderness area, down along the Jordan to Jericho. And after he gets to Jericho, what does he do? Well, the Bible tells us that he makes his way to the Mount of Olives, to the town of Bethany. That's where Mary, Martha, Lazarus lived. He goes to Bethany and he sends some of his disciples ahead to another little village called Bethphage. And he says, Go there. And we don't have time to get into all the details, but he says, Go there. You're going to find a donkey. That donkey will be tied with its foal. And I want you to untie it and I want you to bring it to me. And if anybody says, Why are you untying this animal? Just say, The master needs it. The Lord needs it. And they'll let you go. And that's exactly what happens. And so Jesus gets on this foal that the disciples throw their cloaks over, and he rides down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and rides up into the city of David, declaring himself king. It's a triumphal entry. But here's what we find. We find if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find that those three things that Israel cried out for in 1 Samuel 8 are the three things that we're wanting from any king. We want justice, we want leadership, and we want victory. That's what they say. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 19, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us. There's justice go out before us. There's leadership and fight our battles. There's victory. That's what we want. That's what Israel wanted. But here's what we have to understand in God's kingdom. Things are upside down. Actually, let me clarify in God's kingdom. Things aren't upside down in God's kingdom. Everything is right. The reason it seems upside down is because we are. We are the upside down ones. God's got it right. We are the ones who sometimes have a hard time with God's way of doing things and God's will in things and God's thoughts about things and God's truth about things because we're the ones who are messed up. When we look at God and say, God, that makes no sense. If we had all the information and could view it clearly without the tainted view of sin that we all have and we all experience. If we didn't have that, we would look at God's will and say, that's what I want every single time. But because of our sinfulness, we don't see the true reality of God's will and God's way for what it is. And so because of that, when we ask for a king, and by the way, everybody has a king. Everybody has something that rules over them. Everybody is wanting something to be in command, whether it's us or something or someone else. Anytime we're asking for a king, we need to know what we're getting into. So let's just go through this because Jesus comes and he answers Israel's cry. He answers a cry for one who will judge them, for one who will go before them, for one who will fight their battles for them, but he answers those demands in a way that they did not expect. So first of all, let's look at this idea of justice. In God's kingdom, justice disrupts expectations. Let's look at what happens. This is in John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it, is, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So we have the people in the city recognizing that Jesus is saying, I'm the new king. I'm of the line of David. And they're crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. Salvation has come now. True justice is going to take place. These Romans that have been overruling us, these Romans that have been overrunning us are going to get run out on a rail. This is wonderful. We just can't wait to see what he's going to do. They were expecting justice to come in a particular way. Notice in verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. When you see that phrase, or ones like it, just as it is written, it is a callback to something in the Old Testament that is a prophecy about what is happening in the New Testament. You find in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we find these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there's a prophecy concerning this moment on Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday so many years ago. Your king is going to come riding on a donkey. And we say, why would he choose a donkey? Well, Zechariah talks about a donkey, but here's one of the important things to remember. You don't find in the Bible, you don't find in ancient times, anyone saying, go, saddle up my war donkey. There are no war donkeys. Now, I've ridden my fair share of donkeys, true. And let me tell you, temperamental animals, it's not the kind of animal you want to trust your life to, riding out into battle. It's that they're They're stubborn. And when they decide something that is contrary to what you want them to do, they do what they want to do. Not the kind of reliability that you want when you're on the field of battle. So a donkey was an animal of peace. You saved your horses. You saved the war horses for times of conflict. But in times of peace, you rode in on a donkey. That's why David tells the the people, his counselors around him, saddle up my royal mule. Saddle up my royal, not get my war horse, saddle up the royal mule. Why? Because there doesn't need to be a fight because it's settled. It's it's already settled who the king is going to be. He doesn't have to wage war to get his throne. He's just king. So he's riding in in peace. And you find the same thing with Jesus riding in at the triumphal entry because it's a callback to Zechariah when it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem because he's coming on a donkey. He's coming to exercise justice though. They understood this. There's clear messianic overtones with this. Now this is important time to reemphasize what do we mean when we say justice. Justice is best defined as God's intended order for creation. That's justice. God's intended order for creation. So if God has an intended order for creation and we are to do justice. The justice we are to do is to follow God's intended order for creation. That's what true justice, true rightness is, to follow God's intended order for creation. And so these people in Jerusalem are expecting God's justice to reign, and they're expecting it to come in a way that's going to overthrow the powers that are controlling them right now. But here's what we find. God's notion of justice is counterintuitive. God's notion of justice doesn't matchy-match with many times our notion of justice. Why? Because it's God's intended order for creation. He doesn't stop and ask any of us, how do you think I should order creation? what do you think I should do in this situation? No, it's God's order. So when God shows up and God starts exercising his way to match up his order of the universe, sometimes we get disappointed. Why? Because God is exceeding our expectations, but he's doing it by his will, by his power for his glory. And we will say, I don't like that because it's not my idea of justice. Let's, let's refer back to the definition of justice. It's God's intended order, not my intended order. So in God's kingdom, justice disrupts expectations. Now here's what we know about his kingdom. It's a kingdom of pure righteousness. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. God always does what is right right always God always does things that bring about a clearer view of his intended order for creation we need to have that view so everybody in Jerusalem who was shouting out and supporting Jesus they were thinking this is it justice has come just like Solomon before, now Jesus has ridden into the city. Just as David has returned, so returns our shepherd king, and he's going to set everything right. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 says that whenever he shows up, he goes into the temple after this triumphal entry, he goes into the temple and he looks around, and then he leaves. They go back across the valley, back over to Bethany again. Now, wait, what? The king just comes in. There's a triumphal entry. Everybody's saying, save now. True justice is coming. And he says, all right. And then leaves. Well, that doesn't seem to be the action of a king. Maybe he's going to do something related to justice later. And he does. The Bible tells us the next day, he comes back into town. And what does he do? He goes into the temple and he sees the conditions in the temple, this outer court, the area where the non-Jews could gather to pray. Jesus sees that it is jam-packed, crammed, stacked, full of people who are there selling animals for sacrifice, The ancient historian Josephus tells us that in one week in ancient times, in one week during the Passover week, there was one instance where 244,000 animals, 244,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in one week's time. So this outer area is crammed full of livestock, and Jesus doesn't like it and Jesus exercises judgment mark chapter 11 verse 15 they came to jerusalem And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. The temple grounds had become just sort of a shortcut. And people were just carrying their wares back and forth. It was like an alley. And Jesus said, no. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den robbers. He's saying this area out here, this is for the people of the nations, the non-Jews to come to pray and to worship God because we're all to worship the same God. And this is an area where they can worship and you have overcrowded and pushed them out in order to make a buck off of all these pilgrims who have come into the city. And he starts exercising justice. That's not what they expected. God's justice disrupts our expectations. And Jesus will do this Here, but Jesus will do this now in our life, and we have to understand that God's kingdom will disrupt our lives. It will, it will disrupt your notion of order, it will disrupt your schedule, it will disrupt your bank account, it will disrupt your, your calendaring from here on, it will disrupt everything. For goodness sake, it has disrupted your eternity and giving you a new eternity. How can we expect it not to disrupt the next 24 hours of our lives? He will disrupt human plans. And when we come before God and say, I got so much time, get on with it, get it over with. God doesn't play that game. And when we say, yeah, but God, I've got a schedule to work out. God doesn't play that game. And when we go before God and say, God, I have my laundry list of things and you can work, but you got to work within these parameters. God does not play that. God's kingdom disrupts our expectations because his justice is his intended order. And we have to line up with his intending order as a king who rules over every aspect of life. Give us a king, they said. Give us a king to judge us. Give us a king to go before us. Give us a king who will lead us. That's what we want. That's what we want, Samuel. We want a leader. Well, they got a leader in Jesus. But what they ended up with is a leader who surrendered. Because in God's kingdom, that's what happens. Leadership emphasizes surrender in the kingdom of God. Let's jump a little past Palm Sunday. Let's get a little preview of what's to come later this week as we celebrate Good Friday jesus is before pilate he's been arrested trumped up charges he was down that hill across that valley down toward the the mount of olives he's over there in the garden of gethsemane praying and that's where he's arrested and so yet again later in the week just as he crossed that valley and climbed that hill and entered the city a triumphant king now He is bound and he is brought across that valley and up that hill as a captive, being led as a lamb to the slaughter, still the shepherd king, still the shepherd, and now the lamb at the same time. And he gets led into the city and all these trumped up charges and witnesses that were paid off to lie and people who couldn't get their story straight, and all of these things, this this mockery of a trial that takes place, and he is brought before the Roman leader Pilate. And you would expect, here it is, it's the showdown. Here is this rightful king of Israel, and here is This guy, this invader who is there and living on borrowed time and he's already in trouble with the powers that be back in Rome and he's trying to balance uh, judging and ruling over and administrating and managing this dusty little backwater full of this rabble and now here is this one who is standing before him and he's thinking we can make short work of this but he starts questioning him. John chapter 18, verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Wow, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? (laughs) Jesus, before I answer, are you asking because you want to know or did somebody put you up to it? just want to know listen to Pilate's words Pilate answered am I a Jew your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me what have you done on up to it if you've done something wrong on up to it if you haven't declare your innocence and we'll try to get you off we'll try to set you free Pilate actually was trying to, his sense of, even in his pagan heart, that sense of Roman justice was so strong that he was thinking, we can't just, we can't just punish somebody that's not guilty. Jesus answered, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Now, you have to wonder what was going on in Pilate's mind at this time. So Pilate asks him, so you are a king. He's trying to find a foothold. So you are a king, right? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. That's the leadership that takes place in God's kingdom. It's emphasizing surrender. Here's Jesus surrendering. What's he surrendering to? He's surrendering to the will of his father. He's saying this, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. I'm bearing witness to the truth. Yes, I'm a king. Yes, I'm a rightful king, but my kingdom is not of this world. See what Jesus is saying? Hey, Pilate, my kingdom is not a nation. My kingdom is not a place. My kingdom is a realm. It's not just a nation. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm ruling over it all. It's a realm, not just an isolated place. This is what we find foretold back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. He's saying that his his kingdom, Daniel foretold it, his kingdom is forever. And it's over not just one nation, it's over all the nations and all the people for all the time. What does that surrender look like in order to be ruling over sin, death, shame? It looks like what Jesus prays in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done that's that surrender of leadership. He's surrendering. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It doesn't mean Jesus was imperfect, it means that Jesus fully experienced everything completely. The shame of sin the, the, the death due to sin, the full wrath of God, he experienced every bit of it. And we find that this leadership emphasizes surrender. And not only does that emphasize surrender for Jesus, it emphasizes the surrender for us. Because if the founder of our salvation surrendered to the will of God, how much more are we required to surrender to the will of God if the perfect holy one the son of david surrenders to the will of god in his perfection how much more do i have to surrender to god in my imperfection and in my sinfulness the throne of your heart will never remain vacant it will always be occupied by somebody or something there is no vacancy sign on the throne of our hearts And we will put something there or more often we will climb into that throne ourselves with our feet too short to touch the ground. And a crown so many times smaller or our head so many times smaller than that crown of majesty that is rightfully his. And we will wear that lopsided crown and we will sit in that throne that is way too big for us. And we will leave claw marks on the arms whenever God says get out of there. And we will do it again and again and again. And Jesus shows us perfectly that leadership in the kingdom of God requires surrender. And following that God, being loyal to that God, requires our surrender As well, we cannot afford to live as pretenders to the throne. We cannot afford to live as rebels to the crown. It is going to require surrender, and Jesus models that for us. But not only in God's kingdom does justice disrupt our expectations, and leadership requires surrender, but we find that victory may look like defeat. That's what Israel wanted, right? We want a king who will judge us. We want a king who will go before us. We want a king who will fight our battles. But so many times we have to understand that sometimes those victories, they look very much like defeat. Over in John chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Here's this king who rode in triumphantly, the rightful shepherd king of Israel, the rightful son of David, the rightful one who is heir to the throne. And now he has been crowned. He has been crowned in shame. And he's given an old robe that he wrapped around him and it's saturated with his own blood. That's what we find. Because victory may look very much like defeat. We don't have time to read it, but in chapter uh, one of the book of Luke, Whenever the the angel is speaking to Mary, the angel says that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Well, this doesn't look much like it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a bloody robe. It's a crown of thorns. This is the means to establish his rule over all things, including sin and death. Yes, that's it. And he trades the, the glory of a heavenly throne room for this dusty, windswept place on the outskirts of town where he's going to die for your sins and my sins. And that's what we find. This victory looks very much like defeat. But we have to understand what real defeat is. Because here's the truth. When when Pilate does this to Jesus, we have to understand that the landscape of history is littered with the dried bones of once great empires and once great kingdoms, many of whom stood against the intended order of the will of the one true God, and they are no more. That's what real defeat looks like. Standing in opposition to this humble king. And try as they might, be they religious leaders or the Roman officials of the first century, or whomever you want to put in that blank in this century, cancel culture is never going to touch the king of the universe. Oh, you may try, but you will not succeed. You will join the long list of other dried bone empires and kingdoms littering the landscape of history given enough time. It will happen. But here's the glorious thing. That victory only looks like defeat for a time. Because what does the Bible tell us? Well, the Bible tells us that just as David crossed that valley and came down from the Mount of Olives and crossed Kidron Valley and went back up the hill, into the city of David, into ancient Jerusalem, to be seen as the returning shepherd king. Just as his son, Solomon, came from the bottom of that valley and returned into that city as the king, and everybody shouted so loud, the Bible says, that the earth split. So too, our shepherd king, Jesus, he's going to return the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophet, the priest, the king. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one, one of the offices, those offices that says, this is my chosen one, Jesus Christ. The word Christ is the word that, we, that comes from the word Messiah. Christ, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king, and just as Solomon, it was agreed upon by the prophet Nathan, and by the priest Zadok, and by the king David. He's our guy. So too, not only is Jesus the one, but Jesus is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. And here's what we find that one day the anointed one, the Messiah, the shepherd king, the son of David, he's going to return. And guess where he's going to return? He's going to return from the same place where he left. And where did he leave from? The Mount of Olives. And what happens when he comes back? Well, glad you asked. Zechariah 14 tells us, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So you find Jesus who left the earth and ascended to heaven. He left from the From the top of the Mount of Olives, he's going to return to the top of the Mount of Olives. And just in that day, as the earth split with the cry of victory because the son of David, Solomon, had been crowned and coronated as king, so too the earth is going to split Again, when the king of kings shows up and I got news, there won't be any donkey of peace. He's coming on a war horse when that time comes and there will be no doubt who the rightful king is when he shows up. That's what we find in Revelation 19 verse 11. Listen to this. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on him on it, it's called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Get this, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Just as he wore that old bloody robe before he went to his crucifixion, he's coming back again, and he's got a robe, and it's, it's covered in blood still. Palm Sunday says the shepherd king has returned to claim his rightful throne. And the shepherd king returned then and he died as a sacrifice for sin. The shepherd king is going to return. And this time he's coming not to bring peace. This time he's coming to bring ultimate peace, but he's bringing ultimate peace by destroying all his enemies. And and that sense of justice and that sense of leadership and that desire for victory that they asked for back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they've already gotten it. They've gotten it by God's way, and that is through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. It's going to come again, and there will be perfect justice. God will restore his intended order for the universe. Oh, there will be leadership, leadership that lasts Forever and ever and ever because of his throne. And there will be ultimate victory. Victory over sin and death. It will be no more. What does Palm Sunday point toward? It points toward his glorious return. The king is coming. Give us a king. Oh, I'll give you a king. I'm giving you the king. Are you ready for his return? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Father, there may be people here this morning that would say no to that answer. No, I I am not ready. Father, I pray today would be the day that they would say yes to the shepherd king of Israel. They would say yes to Jesus, the anointed one. The prophet who speaks for you. The priest who makes sacrifices on our behalf. The king that we bow down to and worship. Father, I pray today would be the day that they would say, I want Jesus to rule over my heart. I want Jesus to be my king. I I receive the sacrifice that Jesus made for me as a priest. That he sacrificed his own body for my sins so that I might know God, that today would be the day they would repent, they would turn from their sins and turn fully to Jesus. Father, I pray for for any of us here that may be tempted to place anything or anyone upon that throne other than Jesus himself. And Father, I pray if we're sitting in that throne ourselves, I pray that today would be the day that we would slide out of that chair on our knees before you and say, Lord God, be enthroned. On the heart, on the throne of my heart, rule over my life, Lord God. Father, some of us have spent time in that throne and we have made a mess of our own personal kingdoms. It's time to surrender to the king of the universe. Father, I pray today will be the day we do just that. And whenever those moments come and we're tempted to crawl back up there and take that crown for ourselves. Like Adonijah, like like Absalom, that you'd remind us who the true King is and that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your understanding of justice is your intended order for creation, not ours. And may we surrender fully to that. Father, we pray that as we go into this holy week, as we look ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus and the glorious resurrection that we'll talk about next Sunday, Father, I pray That in every way, at every moment, we would just place Jesus in the right place on the throne of our heart. Every second, every moment, in every way, in every situation. May we see him as king. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.